Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we welcome you to another program. We're so pleased to have you with us on this episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. And the three of us are here. The Galaxy Gang is here. And we're so pleased to have you with us. You know, a few shows back... We did a one-hour program talking about the Twilight Zone, the classic 50s, 60s sci-fi and uh, thrills program that was created by Rod Serling. And we got a lot of positive emails, a lot of positive responses. People were talking about it. And much as in the case of the Titanic program that we did a couple years ago, actually I guess three three years ago now that we did, uh, we're going to present a sort of a sequel to that because there's so much more that we could talk about. Again, this is one of those topics that's just almost endless. You could go in all kinds of different directions with it. But we thought we'd bring back another half hour. There's still some more stuff that we wanted to talk about in addition to mentioning about the new uh, Twilight Zone series that came out in the 80s and a little bit about their radio program. So let's dive right in. We've got more favorite episodes, more anecdotes to tell you about. And, George, let's start with you. I know you've got kind of a list of some, some of your favorite shows, and we'll just all chime in here and uh, and have some fun with this. Well, thanks so much, Gilbert. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you and Mike to talk about all things Baby Boomer. And with regards to The Twilight Zone, there are a number of other favorite episodes that came to mind following our taping of the one-hour program that you referenced. One episode that comes to mind was titled The Howling Man. And interestingly enough, it had a religious, if not spiritual, theme in which it talks about capturing Satan, the devil himself, and how his escapes lead to not one but two world wars, World War One and World War Two, And it's a very interesting episode uh, because this man finds himself in what appears to be an isolated monastery, and it turns out that uh, Satan, the devil, is being held captive there, but he's tricked into releasing him, and he spends the rest of his life returning him to uh, the right place of captivity, but then again, uh, it leaves you with the impression that, as Sterling says, you can catch the devil, but you can't always keep him. So that's one that uh, I thought was a lot of fun. And another one that comes to mind was I shot an arrow in the air about a spaceship crew that has crash-landed on what appears to be a deserted asteroid uh, on the first interplanetary expedition launched from Earth. And, of course, it's a story about survival and a struggle for survival, but what ends up happening is they find out that they have been on the Earth the entire time. They find out they're somewhere outside of Reno, Nevada, about 90 miles away. A sense of irony that Serling made his signature throughout his career. Another episode that maybe you guys remember involved a sense of time travel and a blending of American history. The seventh is made up of phantoms in which there were three missing National Guardsmen in the year 1964. And while they're on maneuvers, they're transported back in time, specifically to Custer's Last Stand, because 
the maneuvers are taking place in the immediate vicinity of where this historic event took place. And then the episode concludes when their commanding officer, who's leading the search party for them, they come upon the National Monument that commemorates Custer's men uh, that were uh, killed in battle there. And what do they find? They find three names, the very same three names of the men that were missing listed uh, as among those killed at that battle. Finally, one that comes to mind, and I'm wondering because of uh, Mike Bragg's association with the film industry, if he remembers this one, it featured Ida Lupino uh, in a role titled The 16 Millimeter Shrine, in which she portrays an aging screen actress from the 1930s. And what she tries to do is to try to relive the glorious days of her past by actually being able to catapult herself just by sheer will into the motion picture. And she disappears into the world of the past on the screen. And as she leaves, she tosses from the screen her signature scarf and it ends up in the hands of her agent, Martin Balsam. And he says to her, you know, to you, my friend, to the dreams that come true. Those are the episodes that uh, have resonated with me over the years. How about you guys? Do you guys have any episodes or do you have any comments about the ones that I just enumerated that uh, spark interest? You know, you mentioned the 16 millimeter Shrine. I always associate that episode with the motion picture Sunset Boulevard. Yes, and I think that Mr. Serling did a spectacular job of talking about it. Of course, it has a happier ending, Yeah, because in Sunset Boulevard, uh, it had an unhappy ending, but this one uh, was much better, I think. It was, yeah. Well, you know, George, like we were, uh, we were talking before we went to air, that a lot of the, uh, the episodes of Twilight Zone really do have a, a moral base, uh, you know, and in some instances, a, a religious or a spiritual base. Uh, yes. And as you mentioned, the the, one, the the Howling Man, that has sort of an interesting um, anecdote to it. It does indeed. This is one, as I said earlier, in which literally Satan, the devil himself, is held in captivity. Well, one of the things that, that uh, we noticed in this particular episode is that Satan is held in captivity in a dungeon room. And as a lock, instead of an ordinary lock, there is what appears to be a shepherd's staff, a little miniature shepherd's staff, and that is sufficient enough to keep him at bay. I did some research on this, and I think it's noted in the classic book, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zakree. It turns out that uh, Mr. Serling and his co-writers actually wanted to have a depiction or actually the cross itself. Uh, to be used as the lock and key that would keep the devil in his place. But apparently the executives at CBS said that they did not want to have the cross because they felt it was an overt symbol of Christianity. And so therefore, Serling and his co-writers, much to their chagrin, uh, ended up opting for the shepherd staff, which of course is still somewhat of a religious symbol because we associate that with, of course, Christ, the Good Shepherd. Nevertheless, that was uh, something that I think was very troubling for Serling because although he was a very spiritual man, I don't know that he was a religious man, but he very definitely had a sense about the humanity that comes forth as a gift from God. And he, of course, brought this out in some other episodes, Gilbert. Yes, yes, George, very true. And uh, it, it, it's it's always evident when... Uh, he wanted to make that point. He wanted to make that, that point in any of these episodes that he wrote. Do you recall, and I believe I referenced it in the one-hour episode, in the, the episode titled The Obsolete Man, Burgess mm-hmm. Meredith, as a librarian who is yes. to be executed, he is actually 
seen and depicted in the episode reading entire passages from the book of Psalms in, right, his, in exactly. his Holy Bible. Exactly. I remember that episode. And I believe that's a half-hour episode. That is George. a half-hour yeah. episode. Uh, very, very deeply moving because at the very end, uh, his captor, uh, who was played by Fritz, Fritz Weaver, Weaver. Mm-hmm. you know, he says, in the name of God, please let right, me out. Right, exactly. And then, of course, I believe there was uh, an episode titled A Passage for Trumpet in which the archangel Gabriel portrayed by John Anderson. He comes to the aid of an aspiring trumpet player portrayed by Jack Klugman. And I think that Mm -hmm. Mike had talked about Jack Klugman's recurring roles throughout the Twilight Zone series. So that was kind of interesting because it's very obvious that it is the Archangel Gabriel interceding on behalf of God to help you know, those who are in, in, in uh, need of assistance, because I believe that uh, the Klugman character was killed in an accident. And so he's sort of in this in-between place. In and, a limbo world, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think that the other episode that was extremely moving, very touching, and I think remains one of the best episodes ever, was called Death's Head Revisited, in which a former SS officer that was in charge of the concentration camps in Dachau, he comes back to visit uh, some of, of the uh, concentration camps that were still maintained and still in existence to this day uh, to what occurred in the 1930s and 40s. And Serling, very specifically in his concluding narration, talks about the loss of humanity on God's earth mm-hmm. when human beings begin to treat themselves in the manner depicted. And, of course, uh, the SS officer ends up receiving a very just punishment because mm-hmm. he is made to feel the physical suffering that he inflicted on so many people during the 1930s and 40s, and yet no one is able to determine why he feels that way. They basically claim that he's lost his mind. Mm-hmm. And so he's condemned to um, have to relive this forever. That uh, you know, and, and it's a reminder, of course, uh, of the biblical passage from Proverbs. You know, be careful; your sin will find you out, and that's what happened here. And Surly, and I think, captured it so beautifully, and in an understated manner, but as always, in only the manner that he could do. It's amazing how a series can remain vibrant and active over a half century later after production and. The the question's always, what was your favorite Twilight Zone episodes or your Twilight Zone season? There are people who have favorite seasons, although it was in, in the world of television, Twilight Zone ran very few seasons compared to a lot of the other shows. But, you know, critics and even uh, TV historians, they tend to talk about the Twilight Zone like it's trapped in amber. It's, it's suspended. But Rod Serling, the magician and the genius he was, figured it out. And I listened to him at, with, give a lecture at the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference one year. And he basically said the success of The Twilight Zone was a result of he and his other writers, his co-writers and his collaborators, uh, writing material to the point where it made people believe the unbelievability. And that's what Twilight Zone's basically all about. I mean, we've got a space-age cult classic Twilight Zone hit the 50s and 60s after World War II and before the crazy 60s and the hippie years and rock and roll and turmoil and everything else. It was perfectly timed, and the content was original and genius, but it addressed atomic war, space exploration, government control, anxiety, 
even mortality. They were all common Twilight Zone themes, and guess what? Almost 60 years later, uh, those themes still play true in what I consider a weak attempt, very weak attempt at today's production of experts' so-called TV series to bring that off. In a lot of the series in the past 45 years, George and Gilbert are obviously attempted knockoffs of what Rod Serling did with the magic known as Twilight Zone. He always seemed to have a sense of irony, and it's interesting to note that the work that he did in Twilight Zone resonated elsewhere, because if you consider the episode I referenced earlier, I shot an arrow in the air, the ending of that is not unlike what he wrote into the film version of Planet of the Apes that he, I believe, co-wrote with Michael Wilson, and that was the original Planet of the Apes that featured Charlton Heston, in which the end of the movie, spoiler alert, uh, they find out they've been on Earth the entire time when they find the Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand. And that was definitely a surling touch. We saw something very similar in the 1980 film The Final Countdown, which was a time travel episode uh, involving Martin Sheen, in which he goes back in time to a period just before the attack on Pearl Harbor. James Farentino plays one of the commanding officers who's reported missing in action, but then he finds him coming back in time uh, 40 years later, and they had to have him uh, go both ways to be able to restore the integrity of the timeline. And it was very Serling-esque. I remember when that movie came out that they commented that uh, even though Serling had been deceased for quite some time, that you could see a Twilight Zone touch to it. Yeah. Serling, uh, of course, uh, a lot of these these programs, you know, that came out during that time period, the, the very early 60s, and I think Mike encapsulated it very well when he said that we have a tendency, I think, to sometimes look at the Twilight Zone as if it's a cast in in a piece of amber. But really, it's a dynamic program. It was a, a it was very uh, appropriate at that time, reflecting, I guess, perhaps some of the fears. It was in the middle of the Cold War. A lot of the topics, as we talked in our previous show, did deal with a, a nuclear war, with a nuclear attack, with uh, fear, with uh, uh, the emotions that would come out in uh, in the public in the event of such an event. And and even today, now with what's happening in the in the world, it's, it's still. If we look at these episodes, there's still a connection between today and and what there was fifty or pl- fifty plus years ago. And aren't you glad, Mike and Gilbert, that the episodes were not colorized? Because I think that the black and white, now of course I defer to Mike on this because he's the expert on this matter, but it seems to me that the black and white seems to underscore the clarity and the concision that characterize the Twilight Zone. And of course I exclude the one-hour episodes because I think that's when it started to go a bit off the rails and they returned to it the, the next year right, exactly. to go back to the half-hour. What do you think, Mike? Well, Serling's ability to light the set, uh, light and shadow were the key, which you cannot do in color production. Uh, Color is color dominant. That's why it's color. Black and white is basically the production value. uh, The uh, verdict is rendered by by the use, the effective and successful use of light and shadow, which Twilight Zone definitely was the epitome of use of light and shadow. It was film noir. Fast-forwarded to a sci-fi scientific episode. We also talked uh, quite a bit in this show about nostalgia because we're a nostalgia show, so that's why we talk about it. But, you know, if you look back, George, several Twilight Zone episodes deal with nostalgia and the desire to return to one's youth. I don't know if you remember the episode called Static, 
That was the the man was able to listen on demand to a radio broadcast from his childhood. He listened to the old radio. He was waxing Dean, nostalgia. Dean Jagger, I believe. Dean yes, Jagger, Dean yes, Jagger, absolutely. Yes. And that just that idea seems so supernatural when that episode first aired. But today, think about YouTube. Think about all of the sources you can find online and on CD on mail order, where you can get the very shows, the jingles, the the disc jockeys that you loved so much in your childhood, they're for the taking, on demand. You're almost disappointed. You're almost you're almost aghast when you go to YouTube and you can't find something from your past that meant so much to you. I recently downloaded uh, from YouTube a uh, air checks from the late Casey Kasem, and how that brought me back, almost exploding a time capsule open to a time in in junior high school when I would come home and do my homework, listen to Casey Kasem on KRLA. That's all very real now, but you go back to the 1960, 1961, that was a weird possibility that you would be able to get that type of material, especially as Dean Jagger attempted to do on his little radio. And even uh, obscure broadcasts from the past, there's so many nostalgia-based episodes associated with the Twilight Zone. And even futuristic, Twilight Zone, Sterling came up with that episode where the I forgot what the coop was. It a 1930s coop. Chase the man around. It was, the episode was called A Thing About Machines. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And this yes. car, this coop was possessed. It was a driverless car. Well, guess what? Google's got a driverless car. <laughs> I don't know how successful it's going to be. And this is before uh, Stephen King's uh, novel, Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was not a TV writer for me. Rod Serling was a futurist. Uh, plastic surgery was still in its infancy when Twilight Zone episodes started airing, but they it was just another one of those unbelievable things that Serling convinced you was believable with the episode about the plastic surgery and the doctors removed the bandages and this beautiful woman with a beautiful face. And these doctors are just mortified by how horribly disfigured this poor woman is. And she's beautiful. And that was Donna Douglas. Yes. We, we pan up to yes. the doctors and these guys are pretty hideous they looking look like dudes. Something so. out of a nightmare. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, on my, yeah, uh, in-laws on my wife's side. <laughs> Uh, on Thanksgiving. Uh, Remarkable. Remarkable. Of course, there's plenty of Twilight Zone envision that it hasn't happened. Serling was a master at predicting things that happened. There's still, luckily, we weren't annihilated by a atomic holocaust, <laughs> as a couple of episodes warned us would happen. Yes. I think the year would be would have been 1985 that we were going to be turned into uh, small granules of silica. I remember there was an episode featuring Lee Marvin that flashed forward, I think, to the 1970s when prize fighting was to be replaced by boxers. I mean, excuse me, by, by robot boxers as opposed to human boxers. And Lee Marvin actually ended up stepping into the role because his boxing robot, uh, for some reason, was broken and he had to substitute for him into the ring. And it was a rather terrifying episode when you think about man versus machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. I remember that episode. I believe here. the episode was titled Steel. Yes, that was Steel. Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, we're talking about the the classic Twilight Zone series, but in 1985, there was a new Twilight Zone series that came out. And uh, we remember that one, George, uh, watching that one. I know and, uh, we were talking before the uh, the show a little bit about that. And uh, there were some memorable episodes in that one as well. There's one that you and I like. Uh, let's talk about that one. It's called Profile in Silver. Wow, what an amazing episode. And Because, it, of course, it involves a theme that Serling had used on a recurring basis throughout the series, 
the theme of time travel. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about it was that it used the theme of time travel to provide an alternate ending to what is regarded as a tragic moment in American history, and particularly to all of us baby boomers who have recollections of where we were on that Friday November 22nd, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated uh, during a visit to Texas. And as I recall, this particular episode provided an alternate timeline, which then had to be restored, Mm -hmm. but it ended up having a happy ending because we find out that the late 35th president did, in fact, not die in Dallas, as we thought, but I believe he ends up being transported Far, far into the distant future, you see him in the closing part of the episode uh, lecturing a group of college students, talking about the issues uh, of the day when he was president and beforehand. That's right. I think he was. In fact, I think he was at uh, at Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. I think uh, it may have and, been. Uh, yes, some futuristic year, twenty one something, and so it is a very interesting program, particularly because we, of course, have interest in in that uh, in the events uh, surrounding President Kennedy, but. As George has pointed out, there is a, a time traveler from that period who comes back and prevents, at that moment, on November 22nd, 1963, prevents the assassination of President Kennedy, which uh, in the story causes a tear in the fabric of time that needs to be repaired because it can't deviate from what it's supposed to be. So as I recall, George, in the, uh, in the plot, in the story, it turns out that Khrushchev got assassinated. The Russians have, have invaded Berlin and President Kennedy is facing the very real threat of a third world war. Um, and so they question this. They Somehow they question this guy, and, and he says, uh, which, is kind of, which is a very poignant moment, George. I don't know if you recall it or not. President Kennedy says, so you came back in time to see how I'm going to handle this. And the man says, no. And President Kennedy's aware of a, of a 50 cent piece with his with his picture yes dated 1964 his image and he goes, yes. uh, in fact the, uh, the commemorative the, coin the commemorative coin the time traveler who happens to be also a professor and a distant relative of President Kennedy's uh, says no he says uh, I didn't know this was going to happen and President Kennedy says you didn't know this was going to happen then it all comes to him he sees the coin and he goes oh my god you came here to, to witness an assassination and then he explains to him that the fabric of time has been torn. Anyway, as, as you pointed out, George, he uh, basically sends President Kennedy into the future, and this time traveler takes the place of President Kennedy in the motorcade. It's an intricate and it's a very, very, uh, very well done episode. And, I, and it is on YouTube, so if any of our listeners have not seen that, you might want to uh, type in Twilight Zone Profile in Silver and you can see it. It's a very moving episode. I think it was, and I think it represented the best of Twilight Zone in terms of its clarity, its concision, but more importantly, the spirit, the spirit of imagination. And I think that, that Serling, at his very heart, was always an optimist. And typical of Serling to perhaps use an ironic approach to taking a tragic situation and creating an alternate view and saying, what if? Mm -hmm. And in this instance here, what if that this person's life did not end uh, as we thought, but actually it continued well into the future to help future generations. What an inspiring episode. And I think that was something that was characteristic of Serling that Mike mentioned earlier about how he inspired others with his high standards of quality in terms of his writing. Yeah, and that's what we have to remember, of course, that by this time, uh, Rod Serling had been uh, deceased 10 years. Yes. And uh, so others had, uh, I believe some of the stories in that series, the later series, were inspired by his stories. 
and some I think were actually remakes, I believe. But uh, by that time, of course, a whole new era of writers had come into being, and a lot of them wrote in this in that in this style. Episode. Yeah, exactly. I think it's amazing. I think during that same period, uh, Carol Serling, the widow of Rod Serling, was responsible for starting a magazine titled Twilight Zone that allowed much of his work, some of it unpublished, to be uh, brought to life, and it helped sort of engender this uh, return to bringing a revival of the series you know, onto network TV, which it did, as you noted, for that one season. Exactly. And you were also going to uh, mention, uh, George, that uh, you enjoy listening to a uh, a radio series. Uh, that's, yes. Uh, Every Broadway. Sunday night, and I'm and I it's on it's on national syndication, so you'll have to find out in your own local radio market where it is. But we listen to it at home on Sunday evenings at 11 p.m., and it's a one-hour program in which original episodes of The Twilight Zone are done in an audio format. And what I think is interesting about it is how well Serling's work translates into radio. And, of course, they expand the dialogue to explain things that were only seen visually when the original series was uh, broadcast. And there are a couple of minor changes that have actually greatly enhanced the episode. Two that come to mind that I would want to share with the audience. One was The Mighty Casey, about an inventor who created a robot that turned out to be an incredible pitcher. And it turns out that in the TV episode, it references a team that relocates from the East Coast to the West Coast and ends up winning several World Series on the strength of a pitching staff that uh, was nothing human. And, of course, the inference was that it was the great Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax because the episode aired during that uh, era of the Dodger pitching dynasty But in the radio version, done with the same name, the only difference is at the very end, to the closing narration, they specifically reference, by name, Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax. So what was done by inference back in the early 60s, in the early 2000s, was done with a more specific reference. The other episode that I thought really demonstrated how good the Serling content translated into radio was The Hitchhiker. We remember that episode with Inger Stevens, in which she plays a cross-country traveler, uh, you know, taking her car from New York City to Los Angeles, and she's being trailed by what turns out to be the specter of death. And it was a very moody episode. And surprisingly, it translated very well into radio because of the effective voiceover narration that describes, with exquisite detail, the feelings of being shadowed during her cross-country trip, and then the revelation that, in fact, she had died in a traffic accident some days earlier, and it was, of course, the specter of death taking her to the other side. Very, very effective tribute, and uh, we continue to enjoy it to this day. Yes, we do, and it's something that continues, uh, and happily, Twilight Zone episodes are available for us on DVD and uh, online, and uh, we continue to enjoy those uh, for uh, a long time. I will never forget the one Twilight Zone, the 80s version. I only enjoyed that series, those seasons, when they were comic seasons or comic episodes. The Harry Morgan, The Curious Case of Edgar Witherspoon, where he had the Rube Goldberg contraption in his apartment. The social worker came up and thought he flipped out. And this crazy old man with his Rube Goldberg tinkering and 
turning dials and whatnot all the time, it turned out he was making adjustments so that the world would run properly. <laughs> if only we could do that. And for one of the things I hoped he would have worked on was how to control time because we've run out of it here on Galaxy. We do thank you so much from the bottoms of our hearts here for listening to us and actually supporting us and keeping us vibrant and alive with your ideas, your Facebook mentions, and your likes, and your emails. Uh, You can always reach us at Facebook, which is where we prefer to interact with our listeners. And it's Facebook. Just go Facebook and Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, and you'll get to our page. We appreciate all the likes that we get and any folks that you tell about our shows who will like us. We are all also available at Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site. That's S-I-T-E dot com. That's our website where you can get George's blogs, which are very interesting, energetic, and vibrant, as only George can make them. But until next time, I am going to lead the exit out the studio door here by saying I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. Listen to us again very soon right here at Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.